Are you looking for a new job? Then today's sponsor might be right up your alley. Today's episode is brought to you by RGF Professional Recruitment Japan, the bilingual arm of Recruit, Japan and Asia's largest recruiting and information service company, helping thousands of people every year to unleash their potential. RGF partners with multinational and domestic businesses with a global outlook in Japan to provide market leading bilingual talent across all industries. Their career consultants ensure that your job search is smooth and stress free whilst identifying the best opportunities to meet your career and personal goals. RGF specializes in finding positions for skilled professionals across all functions of enterprise technology, professional services and consulting, consumer technology, back office and finance, industrial and manufacturing, and healthcare. Visit rgf-professional.jp, that's rgf-professional.jp, to register your resume and unleash your potential today. That link is in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. At the start of the year, AMC Networks, the company behind shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad, acquired anime distributor Sentai, and with it, the anime streaming service High Dive. In August, Sony bought the anime streaming platform Crunchyroll for almost $1.2 billion. And over the past couple of years, streaming giants like Netflix and Disney have poured money into original anime programming. Interest in anime around the world has never been higher. Behind the scenes though, animators struggle to make a living, and many insiders are calling the industry unsustainable as studios struggle to keep up with demand and the pandemic slows production. Here at Deep Dive, we figured this would be as good a time as any to revisit the rise of this piece of Japanese soft power, and who better to do it than my colleague, culture editor Alyssa I. Smith. On today's episode, Alyssa will be speaking to Japan Times contributor Matt Schley to ask, what's behind Japan's booming anime industry? And with so much overseas interest, what makes anime anime in 2022? Matt, welcome to Deep Dive. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, you've been writing about anime for the Japan Times since 2017, and you're one of our go to people for all things anime. To sort of kick us off, I think it would be useful to give the discussion some context. So, why don't we go back to when anime started? Sure. Anime in Japanese is a, a shortening of the word animation. So, in Japan, when you say anime, you're talking about any kind of animation, which really threw me off when I first moved here and I asked people, What's your favorite anime? And they said Toy Story 2 or something. I was like, What? <laughs> but, <laughs> but in English, when we say the word anime, we're of course referring to Japanese animation.、Mm-hmm. Now, Japanese animation has a long history. The first known anime that we've still got, you can watch on YouTube, was made in 1917, about 100 years now.、Mm-hmm. The early kind of pre war anime was often silent, leading up to World War II, a lot of kind of propaganda films, again, like in the States,、mm-hmm. um, Mickey being used to boost morale. Right. Same thing here in Japan, and the first full length anime feature is called Momotaro Sacred Sailors. That's a,、um, again, a propaganda film. Post war, the industry really starts to become what we think of it now as the modern industry. There's a very famous film from 1958 called Hakujaden that was made by Toei, who are still around. 
Um, it's the first full-length color anime. And that film was based on a Chinese folktale? It was, yes, yeah, yeah. There was a 4K restoration done of it a couple of years ago. It's a really beautiful film. Now, films up to that period really used the Disney style, animating 24 frames a second, really fluid animation. Mm-hmm. The first anime to kind of introduce the style that we think of as, as Japanese animation came in 1963. That was Astro Boy, Tetsuan Adam. That was produced by Tezuka Osamu. And that really, that sets the template for the anime that we still watch today. So it's based on a popular manga. It uses a kind of aesthetic with the, the big eyes that we associate with anime, the kind of cute, over-exaggerated characters. And it uses a style called limited animation. Mm-hmm. And what that means is Disney films, one second of animation is 24 frames typically, right? Very fluid look. Tezuka and other people realized that that wasn't going to be possible. They didn't have the manpower to do that on a weekly basis, right, to get out this kid's show. Mm -hmm. So what they did instead was embraced a style called limited animation. So instead of doing every 24 frames, they would do eight frames and shoot shoot three of those frames three times. So you've got less fluid animation, but, you know, it's on TV, it's for kids. Ultimately, it's out there to sell manga and it's out there to sell toys and stuff like that. And that kind of aesthetic became the standard. Right. I know it made a huge impression on my mom because, you know, she doesn't watch a lot of anime now, but even now she talks about Astro Boy and how much she loved watching it as a kid. Mm, it was it was huge. So then after Astro Boy, that must have started a trend in anime. Yeah. So anime became huge. Of course, it's first aimed at children. Mm-hmm. Over time, um, people get into the industry who originally wanted to make live action film. And they had kind of higher ambitions. People like the creator of Gundam, which is considered one of the first kind of adult anime. Mm -hmm. It's still for kids and it's still meant to sell robot toys, but he snuck in a lot of kind of more adult themes. Okay, It's about war, people die, and that's still considered one of the great anime. So as Japan's economy flourishes, you get into the 80s, um, you've got a lot of money swirling around, and you've got really incredible lavish productions. People think of 1988's Akira as one of the kind of seminal, great-looking anime productions. When I think of Akira, I don't, I don't really see that as being made for children. It seems like a very adult-themed film. No, absolutely. There's, there's violence and blood and guts and all that stuff, yeah. So we see anime getting more specialized as well in the 80s with the advent of VCRs and and Betamax players and stuff like that. You've got a specialty market that's only on video that's aimed at um, more affluent consumers, obviously. You've got this whole subset of anime that's for people in their 20s or 30s or 40s with a lot of money to spend. Again, it's the 80s in Japan. And you've got people producing this specifically for the video market or for the theatrical market. So far, we've talked a lot about how anime became popular in Japan, but how did it move over to the West? 
from a very early time, from the 60s and 70s, you've got anime being released in the West, but in kind of a hidden form, if you will. So it's a cheap way for, for TV shows to get animation. They don't have to animate themselves. They can import it from Japan. They can dub it into English. They can pretend the main character's name isn't Satoshi, it's John. And they scrub a lot of the Japanese-ness from it, right? Mm, I remember watching uh, an episode of Pokemon, and the main character's name was turned to Ash, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was so disconcerting for me. I'm like, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you can imagine if you go back even further, the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. just trying to scrub any Japanese-ness from it, right? Um, once you get to the 80s, you've got a more kind of discerning fan base that starts to grow. And you've got people that realize this stuff is from Japan, Mm -hmm. they start to demand that they get subtitled releases in addition to dubbed releases. There were some early anime released in the West that, for example, the original film is two hours. And the producer said, hey, this is for kids. They're not going to be able to sit for two hours. Let's cut 30 minutes of it. An example of that is um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which is a very famous uh, Miyazaki Hayao film, which was... I think they cut 20 or 30 minutes of it. They renamed it Warriors of the Wind. They took emphasis off Nausicaa, the main character, because you can't have a girl be the main character, right? <laughs> Unthinkable. Unthinkable. And it just became this weird mess. It doesn't make any sense. And fans in the States started to demand from their licensors that, hey, we want to see the whole movie. Mm. We want to see it given at least an accurate English dub. We also want the option to watch it in subtitled form, right? And um, that grows. So in the mid-90s, you've got stuff like Dragon Ball, um, Sailor Moon. Um, eventually, Pokemon comes on there. As you mentioned, Pokemon is, is still a bit of a situation where they're changing the names of characters and things like that. But you've got a whole generation that doesn't have to search out anime on, on tapes or get, get it from friends or whatever. You can just turn on TV and it's there. So I think a sign that the West had really started to accept anime as, you know, a legitimate genre was when Spirited Away won the Oscar in 2003. And the Oscar goes to, let's see, Spirited Away, Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah, that that was huge. Spirited Away is the 2001 film from Hayao Miyazaki, Studio Ghibli. That was the first and remains the only Japanese anime film to win the Oscar. That film had Disney pushing behind it in the publicity department. Uh, Nevertheless, it was a huge thing for anime. Miyazaki didn't go because America was in the middle of the Iraq War, which he was against. Eventually, he did win a separate Lifetime Academy Award, which he went and gave a very charming speech you can watch on YouTube. That remains the only anime film to win an Oscar, but a few films have been nominated since then. The film that probably has the best shot this year is Bell, the uh, new uh, Hosoda Mamoru film. The one that got the uh, 13-minute standing ovation at Cannes? That's the one. Mm. What would you say is the relationship between anime and the buildup of Japan's soft power? I think it's all part of a piece. You know, you've got anime becoming more popular. You've got video games. You've got uh, Japanese technology, people really looking as to Japan as being a place they want to go, a kind of 
Dreamland and anime is definitely a huge part of that. Especially when you get to the 90s and 2000s, you get a lot more anime that's set in Japan, that it's obviously Japanese. Not just the kind of sci-fi, Neo-Tokyo, Akira stuff, but stuff where you can really get a look at kind of what Japan looks like. It becomes a, a great way for people to kind of peer into the nation. Well, then let's move into the 2010s, which was a pretty important decade for anime. What would you say were the key events during this time? So anime continues to be more and more popular abroad. You've also got the retirement, supposed retirement of Miyazaki Hayao. The first time. The, the actual, well, the th- about the th- every time he makes a movie, <laughs> he says, this is the last one, this is the last <laughs> one. But yeah, there was kind of a sense for many, many years that when you released a theatrical anime film that didn't have a manga behind it. The general public wouldn't go to see an original anime film unless it was directed by Miyazaki. His films always did really well. Other original anime films tended not to do that well. So aside from Ghibli films, it was sort of thought that if you didn't have all the manga series or like television series to back it up, then the film itself wouldn't do very well. That's right. Yeah. Now, that changed in 2016. Three films came out that year, which were all relatively huge hits, especially uh, Your Name, Makoto Shinkai's film, Mm -hmm. which became a giant hit. For a time, it was Japan's highest grossing film worldwide. It's since been eclipsed by Spirited Away, which we just talked about, because Spirited Away got its official release in China two years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cheating, right? <laughs> <laughs> you also had two films which were a little bit more modest hits, In This Corner of the World, which is a um, kind of pre-war and, and war um, film set in, in Hiroshima. And you had uh, A Silent Voice, which was a more arty film from Kyoto Animation. Um, all those films did really well, and they kind of busted that myth that only Miyazaki could do well with the general audience. So between 2002, around the time Spirited Away was being released, and 2020, the Japanese animation industry more than doubled in size with an annual revenue of $21 billion. What would you say are some of the reasons for this boom in anime? Well, we can't discount the foreign market, which has exploded. From 2010 to 2020, you go from about $2.5 billion to about $12 billion dollars. Not just the West, but also countries like South Korea and China, Vietnam, Thailand. So all across Europe, Asia, the Americas, people getting into anime has been has been huge. The domestic market has also gone up, not as dramatically, mm-hmm. but it has gone up as well. People are really into this Japanese cartoon stuff. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? So... You see a lot of companies now trying to capitalize on the popularity of anime mm-hmm. in the West. We talked before about the 80s and 90s, right? Where you've got a, essentially what we would now call startups. Companies of two or three or four people slapping some subtitles onto whatever they could license from Japan. Japan saying, well, you want to license this? What? Okay, fine. Here you go. These really passionate fans releasing stuff for other passionate fans. At some point, because anime gets so popular, as often happens, these companies get bought by bigger companies. And now you've got these really giant streaming companies or other home video companies 
um, kind of dominating the licensing industry in the West. Another reason for this huge boom would be that people are getting into, they're they're hoping for more of an interactive experience, right? So like uh, people are going to live events, concerts and things like that. Yeah, that's been a huge thing. Um, about 10 years ago, one of the largest sources of income in the in, in the industry, especially in the domestic industry, was Blu-ray and DVD sales. Mm-hmm. Those numbers have gone down because, well, everyone's streaming. And the numbers for more interactive experiences, exactly like you said, have gone up. People are, are want to live anime. They don't just want to experience it at home on a screen. They want to go out and, and make friends. Do uh, cosplay. And do cosplay. Cosplay is huge um, to a certain extent in Japan. It's huge in the West. You've got anime conventions in the West, which are which are huge. So yeah, people want to bring anime into their into their lives. Mm-hmm. Now you've mentioned streaming a few times, so let's talk about the impact of those streaming services. One thing that really stands out is the success of Demon Slayer. And before the film Mugen Train came out, it was a series, and that was available on a lot of different streaming platforms, right? So. Do you think that contributed to the huge success of the film itself? Yeah, Demon Slayer, it it had kind of all the pieces to become a huge hit, right? It was a moderately successful manga. On top of that, it had a pretty successful anime series. Plus, it was at a time when everybody stuck at home. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic. During the pandemic. And so word of mouth spread about this Demon Slayer thing. As you mentioned, it was not locked into one specific streaming platform, Mm -hmm. and that really primed the pump for when the film came out in 2020. Everybody had read the manga or watched the show, really dying for something to do. Uh, The corona numbers weren't so bad when the film came out, and so uh, the floodgates opened, Mm -hmm. um, and it became Japan's highest grossing film of all time. So major companies like Disney and Netflix are seeing the popularity of anime, and it looks like they're aggressively moving into the sphere, right? And they're starting to produce their own original content. Yeah, that's right. Netflix has its own original content for the purposes of full disclosure. Let me just mention here that I do some consulting work for Netflix. Disney Plus has started producing anime. Netflix has started producing anime. Crunchyroll has started producing anime. And yes, they are going beyond simply licensing anime, putting dubs and subs on it, and releasing it. Now they are making their own stuff. And we're also seeing international collaborations, right? So these big companies are also working with maybe smaller Japanese studios. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So one example from last year was Star Wars Visions, which is a bunch of small Star Wars stories made by different anime studios. Um, you've got the new Blade Runner show. If you told me when I was 13 or 14 that there was going to be a Blade Runner anime, my brain would have exploded. <laughs> These kind of quasi-anime that are, maybe they've got a American director, but they're directed at a Japanese studio. So yeah, the amount of, of international co-productions is growing. Well, something interesting that's happened is in 2020, the overseas market for anime surpassed the domestic market for the first time. Why would you say that is? Yeah, this was a pretty big deal. This was a trend that was already happening, but the pandemic accelerated it, much like a lot of things, right? You could see the numbers inching up year by year in the foreign market. And in 2020, they did surpass the domestic market in Japan. Now, those events that we talked about earlier... Um, going to 
anime concerts, going to anime live talk events and stuff like that. We couldn't really do that in 2020. So that might have been a reason why the domestic market dropped a little bit. Conversely, people in the West or in other countries in Asia sitting around in 2020 without a lot to do, maybe discovering anime for the first time, you've binged all the live action you can. <laughs> oh, here's this library of, of uh, this crazy cartoons from Japan. Let's check this out. Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of those two factors. Obviously, like you said, the pandemic had a huge effect on the consumption side of anime, but what about production? So early on in the in the pandemic, a lot of shows were getting delayed. A lot of that was due to the global supply chain, which everybody keeps talking about, right? <laughs> a lot of anime is produced actually in countries like South Korea and China. Typically, the, the creative work is done largely in Japan. And then the kind of more, I don't want to say grunt work, but what you call in-between frames, okay. which are the frames between the keyframes that make the animation look more smooth, mm-hmm. are done in Again, South Korea, China, Vietnam. And it was hard to get that stuff back and forth, right? So the anime industry has typically not been an industry with a lot of slack. Everything's kind of done last minute. There's stories of people running the tapes to the uh, to the broadcasters at the last minute, uh-huh. shoving the tape in the thing, <laughs> and, and this the show getting on air. At, hoping at the it last all minute. works out. Hoping it all works out. <laughs> and, and there are cases even long before the pandemic of shows that that have been delayed by weeks or or months or whatever. So take that, add a pandemic, things get delayed, right? So that was the early days of the pandemic. Things are much better now. One of the reasons that things are much better now is because more people have embraced digital technology. Because they were working remotely or from home. That's right, exactly. Now, you might think that anime is produced largely in computers, but a very important step in the process, which is the the drawing of keyframes, is actually still largely done on pencil and paper. Those keyframes are then scanned into the computer where, where all the uh, coloring and, and post-processing happens. It's one of the things that I love about anime, the fact that that first step is still done on pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. But as you can imagine, once you've got the pandemic going, it becomes a lot harder to get that paper from one place to another, um, for people to assemble in great numbers in these very uh, poorly ventilated uh, small animation studios. So a lot of animators have embraced either using tablets and things like that to draw keyframes directly in, in digital, or they've kind of hooked up their own home studio where they do it on pencil and paper and then they scan it in and they email it to the studio. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, that has positives and negatives. You talked a little bit about the work environment for these animators, but one thing that comes up a lot when we talk about anime is the poor working conditions that many of these creators have to deal with. So if anime is thriving, why why are these workers being treated so poorly? Yeah, it's a, it's a really complicated question, but there are a few reasons. Like any creative industry, there's always this kind of idea that well, you should do it for the love because it's something you really want to do. Because of the way the industry is structured, most animators, even if they work at a single studio, are considered freelancers or independent contractors. So instead of being paid a monthly salary, they're often paid by frame or or by shot. Nobody's ever gotten rich on this, but it was possible to make a, a decent living in the 60s and 70s and 80s when anime looked a little bit less complicated than it does now. 
if you look at a frame of Detective Conan from the 90s and you look at a frame of Demon Slayer, for example, mm-hmm. it's just way more intricate these days. But the wages for, for a frame have not gone up. Right. So you're spending three or four times the amount on a single frame of animation getting paid the same 200, 300 yen. And there's this mindset where the companies are saying, this is how it's worked for decades, right? So mm-hmm. we're not going to change that. You just have to deal with it and do it for the love of the work. There's that. There's the fact that a lot of studios are run by former animators or, or former directors or, or whatever who are maybe better at making anime than they are at making business decisions a lot of the time. Hmm. There's also this thing called the production committee system, the Seisaku Inkai. Seisaku Inkai. Have you mm. heard of this? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people blame this system for anime's kind of stagnant wages. So this, simply put, this production committee, when you fund an anime, you don't fund it with one company. You get a bunch of companies together. So you get the music rights go to this company. They put in a little money. The DVD company puts in some money. The streaming service recently, they put in some money. So you're kind of hedging your bets, right? But that makes it so the studio, while they might be producing the anime, they're not often reaping the rewards. So they don't have, for example, royalties. Mm -hmm. If an anime does poorly, they make a set amount of money. If an anime does well, they make a set amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. And they're often not the best at negotiating, uh, is what a lot of my sources have told me. All right. So then how much are animators getting paid? Yeah. So there's this group called the Japanese Animation Creators Association. They're known as Janika. They do a survey every, I believe it's four years, to ask animators, hey, how are you doing? And their most recent survey, which is 2019, found that um, on average, animators in their 20s make 1.1 million yen a year. A million sounds like a lot until you do the math and you realize that's about $10,000 a year, mm-hmm. which is uh, less than minimum wage. You know, it's unlivable. Right. Things get a little bit better when animators move into their 30s and 40s. People in their 30s said their average was 3.5 million yen, which is a little bit over $30,000. Again, not great. Nobody's getting rich on this stuff, but livable. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is... Because the people in their 20s are only making $10,000 a year, living in a place like Tokyo, which is where all the anime studios are, they simply can't afford it. And so you've got an NPO called Animation Supporters um, who have done a survey that said that about 90% of animators quit the industry within two or three years. Hmm. So as it is now, it's kind of an unsustainable system. So with all of these animators dropping out of the industry after a few years, would you say it impacts the quality of the animation? Yes, There are a lot of reports out there recently about productions that are not able to find enough animators. So recently, a big trend has been studios going on places like Twitter, looking at artist profiles of people abroad, saying, hey, do you want to work in the anime industry? Mm -hmm. That's great for animators who live abroad, who've always wanted to work in anime. Now they can. Mm -hmm. And from what I hear, it's very easy to get a job (laughs) because they're so strapped for animators. That said, that doesn't really point to a healthy and sustainable industry. Right. Are there any efforts to improve the industry? Thankfully, there are. There are a few training programs that have been opened by different companies. Netflix teamed up with a studio called WIT to set up a kind of training academy, which is um, giving people stipend and hooking them up with senior animators. There are also studios out there that have been doing this for a longer time. 
The most famous example of this is Kyoto Animation. Kyoto Animation has, for a long time, had a really sustainable philosophy. They hire people and they actually give them the skills to succeed. They hire a lot of people on salary. They're based outside of Tokyo, so the living expenses are a little bit more reasonable. And thanks to Kyoto Animation being really forward looking, they grew to be a studio that has some of the best looking animation out there.、Mm-hmm. As readers and listeners know, really tragically, In 2019, they were the victim of an arson attack that killed almost 30 of their employees. So that was a major setback for that really, really admirable studio. Fortunately, they're still around and they are producing new anime.、Mm-hmm. So then these companies are really focusing on nurturing their talent and trying to retain people for the long term. That's right. That's right. And you're seeing that that has a direct effect on the quality of the animations that they're producing. Absolutely. And when you've got the same animators over a period of five or ten years, not only animators, but character designers and, and directors and things like that, you kind of get a house style. Every anime they produce is going to have that kind of Kyoto animation feel to it. You've talked about how we're moving away from the more traditional style. And how bigger players like Netflix and Disney are getting involved, you know, more non Japanese companies. We're seeing a lot of changes in anime. So then, you know, we have to ask the question what is anime? Is it the storylines? Is it the visuals? How would you define anime? Yeah, that's, this is the million dollar question. This is the huge debate heard all around the internet. I'll put it this way there are fans that really care who made it, who's the director. Is the large percentage of the creative staff Japanese or not? There are fans that really care about that authenticity. And there are fans that, that don't. There are people that love that anime look and they don't care whether that's made by a Western studio or a, or a studio from South Korea. If it's got that kind of anime look and feel that they like, they don't care. I think both of those viewpoints are entirely valid. And I think the industry is big enough that. It can handle both. We talked about the international market surpassing the domestic market for the first time in 2020. I think that trend will probably continue based solely on the, the population of Japan, for example, right? <laughs>、um, it's going down. And so there's a limit to, to what you can sell in Japan. That said, the domestic market is still huge, it's still half of the market for anime.、Mm-hmm. So I think you're still going to see plenty of what we might call more authentic anime. Aimed at a Japanese audience and enjoyed by a Western audience, but not made for the Western audience. You're also going to see a ton of anime aimed at a Western or, a, or an Asian or a European audience. So it's trying to retain the heart of anime then? Yeah. And ask 10 people what the heart of anime is, and you'll get 10 different answers, right? Again, it's not a, it's not a genre, it's a medium. There's anime that I hate, but people that I work with love, and, and vice versa, right? But There's kind of this nebulous aesthetic or, or something that I think we all think of as Japanese animation. Well, thank you for joining me today, Matt. It was really nice talking to you. Thanks for having me. On Tuesday, Japan recorded 62,599 cases of COVID 19 nationwide, its highest tally since the pandemic began. With cases still rising, the government is set to expand quasi states of emergency to 34 of Japan's 47 prefectures. 
Daycare centres have been particularly affected by the recent surge in cases, with more than 300 forced to shut due to students or teachers testing positive. Also, over the last week, demonstrations have taken place in several countries against Japan's strict border measures, which continue to prevent non-resident foreign nationals, such as hopeful students, academics and workers, from entering the country. According to organisers, more protests are planned later this month in Germany, Austria, Spain and Argentina, as well as outside the Prime Minister's office in Tokyo in February. This episode was hosted by the Japan Times' culture editor, Alyssa I. Smith, and produced and edited by me, Oscar Boyd. Our guest this week was Matt Schley. A big thank you to him. You can see all of his articles on the Japan Times' website, and I've linked a couple in the show notes below. That's it for this week. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review Deep Dive recently. It helps more people to discover the show, so please do keep those coming. Until next time, as always, Potskale Summer. Summer.